You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Thank you for being in our house this morning and celebrating this great holiday with us. Um, I have recently... By recently, I mean the last year and a half or two, started getting into woodworking. And for Christmas, I was in desperate need of an idea for my, for my wife and uh, for a gift. And she was in desperate need of a makeup station, a place to do her makeup, a vanity type thing. Because um, she was just using this tiny little spot in our bathroom that was just, just horrific. And so... Um, so anyway, I talked to her about, about building this thing, and it seemed like the most complex project I had done, but I got her approval to make sure that I wasn't wasting my time. And, uh, and she said yes. So we both get excited about it. And, uh, and you know how the whole project thing goes. Um, is I get super excited at the beginning. I've got high ambitions. I've got all these uh, sweet ideas about what I'm going to do. And uh, I tell her it's going to be done a week after Christmas, just a week after. You know, I had a few days after Christmas. I'm going to get it done then. Well, a week turns into two, turns into three, and then four weeks, and then five weeks, and like we're midway through February before it's done. And this process is just maddening. It's time and it's money invested. It's one Saturday after another, and ah, it's so much more complicated than I ever thought that it would be. And I just remember thinking to myself again and again uh, as I completed that project or I was getting, as I was getting ready to, I just don't know if woodworking is for me. I cannot wait until I am done with this. And when I'm done, I'm not going to do a, a project like this maybe ever again or for a long, long time. The amazing thing, though, is that when I finished and I saw the finished product <clears throat> and I was pleased with the finished product, I immediately wanted to start another project. So I'll show, you, I'll show you how it turned out here. Pretty cool, right? Yeah, yeah. It's exactly what we wanted. I mean, like, I, I see the little details and all the things that are wrong with it. But besides that, she loves it. It's a sweet project or whatever. Um, but I look at that, and, and I can't help but just, like, feel some pain. You know, like, I know what went into making that and the hours and the money, like, and whatever. Um, but seeing this finished product, being pleased with the finished product, um, I was immediately ready to start again. And this project cycle really isn't new to me. It tends to happen when I work on any kind of project. It may be, um, may be a woodworking project. It may be a sermon. Uh, you might know what I'm talking about if you do any type of creative work. Um, I'll show you the project cycle. I, <laughs> I came across this a while back. Um, and just follow this with me. This is the best idea ever. That's where we start. Oh, this is harder than I thought. This is going to take some work. This sucks, and it's boring. Dark night of the soul. You ever reach that point where you're in a project, just, this is the dark night of the soul. This is absolutely awful. And then there's, this, there's some light at the end of the tunnel. It, <laughs> it will be good to finish because I'll learn something for next time. And then it's done, and it sucks, but not as bad as I thought. And so uh, that's the project cycle. And if it's good enough at the end, we're usually ready to uh, start something again. I guess we're just stupid. I don't know. Um, anyway, what I've learned from this process is the power of seeing and knowing the end result. It's what gets me to start. The end result, if I didn't have an idea in my head, I would never start. It's the thought of the end result that keeps me going when things get hard. If I didn't think it was possible to finish, I just would have quit. You got you to see and you got to know and you got to have confidence in the end result and the finished product. And this end result 
That when it's all said and done, after all that pain, all that, all that labor, all that waste of time and money and whatever, that makes you say, I want to do this again. You may not be a woodworker, but the same applies to other areas of life. Like I said, the same applies to, to writing sermons and doing all kinds of things. Uh, maybe the best example is child labor, right, for the, for the women in the room. I mean, like, uh, nine months of, I don't know, I mean, some, some of them love it. I don't know. My wife loved being pregnant and uh, this whole process. But then, like, the most painful thing in the world is giving birth to a child, and it's all done, and you want to do it again. And so you just forgot that it was so painful. You're just, you know, you see the end result, and this is beautiful, and it overrides all the pain that you went through. It's the power of the end result. And this is also the power of the resurrection. And now you might be thinking to yourself, what I thought the resurrection was a historical event that happened 2,000 years ago. How is that the end result of my faith? We'll get to that. We'll talk about the resurrection today. But what I'd like to propose is that we may have lost sight of the end result of our faith. Is that we may be living void of the power of the end result of our faith. We may be living without the power of the resurrection in our lives that the early Christians lived with. And that if we'd like to live with joy and with passion and with purpose in the midst of of trials and hardships and pain and suffering, then we need to rediscover what is the end result of our faith. And so today we're going to talk about the resurrection. And by the end of this, my hope and prayer is that you have confidence and joy and passion and purpose. You leave this place just oozing with these things as we have a better understanding of what is a resurrection, um, why does it matter in my life, not just as a historical event, but as the end result of my faith. Now we're going to do this... uh, by reading 1 Corinthians 15. Long chapter. We're going to read kind of pieces of it, not the whole thing. Um, just so you know, this is the, the first account. Um, historically, this is, this is the earliest anything written about the resurrection. Believe it or not, 1 Corinthians was written before all of the gospel accounts were written. Okay, And so this is a really, really important uh, document that we have here. In the entire chapter, the Apostle Paul dedicates to talking to the church in Corinth about the resurrection. Okay, so let's start. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 8. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. I want to, I want to pause there just for a moment. By this gospel, he says, you are being saved. If you hold firmly to it, by this gospel, you're being saved. Remember, well, it says you are saved, but more literally, the more literal translations are you are being saved. Salvation is a process. It's not just something that happened to us once. It's something that is happening to us now and will come to completion at one day, right? And so that process, though, it only takes place if we are holding Firmly, if we are clinging tightly to the truths that we proclaim, there is real power in knowing and believing the truths of the Christian faith, of reflecting on them often, right? Holding to them firmly. He says, otherwise, if you don't, you have believed in vain. The result of your faith will come to nothing. You can say you believe these things, but if you're not living them out, 
if you're not thinking about them often, if they don't drive your, your very existence, they don't drive your life and the purpose of which you live, it just won't matter. It will all be for nothing. It will be empty. Let's read on. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas or Cephas, which, who's Peter, um, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. Now notice for a minute the length that Paul goes to to validate the truth of the resurrection. What he's doing here, he's listing all of these names. All right, Jesus uh, died, he was buried, and then he was resurrected. Now let me tell you about all these people that saw him in the flesh after his crucifixion. He says, uh, Peter, the 12 disciples, uh, more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Uh, we were just over in the sanctuary over there. Full of, there was probably about 500, 550 people in that sanctuary. That many people at the same time saw the risen Jesus, right? He's making a point. And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And then Paul says he also appears to me. What Paul is doing is he's being very, very intentional here. What he's doing is very purposeful because according to Jewish law, and according to Roman law, both. All it took was, was two or three witnesses. That's it. To validate the truth of an event. Just two or three. And Paul's saying here, he's like, look, um, there are over 500 people who saw the risen Christ, many of whom, he says, are still alive as he writes this letter. Go talk to them. Go talk to them. Some are dead, but most of them are still alive. And then of all people to say that they saw the risen Christ is, is Paul. If you don't know Paul's story, like he was literally the, the church's greatest enemy for its first few months in existence. He was persecuting and murdering Christians. He was out to get the church. And then he saw Christ. And it changed his life forever. To all these witnesses, this isn't a matter of faith, right? The resurrection isn't a matter of faith to them. It's a matter of fact. It really is just like, you know, if you saw the risen Christ, you, I know what I saw. It's not a matter of faith. It's a matter of fact for them. And Paul wants the church in Corinth to know that. Look, this, this, this doesn't have to be a matter of speculation and faith. I am telling you, he is real. He is risen. He is alive. Now, as I was reflecting this week on the, the historical events of the resurrection, I was just blown away, um, really kind of, kind of overwhelmed at the amount of evidence there is for the resurrection of Christ. And some of you are like, man, Jake, I, don't, I already believe this. You don't need to convince me. And I'm telling you, but I needed to convince myself. You get it? Like, I mean, this is it's not new stuff to me. I spent a lot of time studying and researching this stuff a long time ago. I'm probably one of the most logical people you'll ever meet. And, and I look at things objectively, at least I think so. And, and I'm telling you, I've, I've done my work. And every time I reflect on it, I'm just blown away again by what the evidence suggests. The historical fact is this. The tomb was empty. That's a historical fact. Not a scholar on earth at least a respectable scholar, denies the fact that the tomb was empty. Had it not been empty, what could they have done? The authorities who were denying 
the Christians' claims, the new disciples' claims that he had been risen, they could have just gone to the tomb, got the body, and presented it to them, and put the whole myth to death. All right? The fact is, the tomb was empty. So then we have to make a choice. Do we believe one of two things? Either A, that these uh, fear-filled disciples, who were probably like in their late teens at this point, somehow snuck past armed Roman guards who'd been set in front of the tomb, rolled away a massive, you know, thousand-plus-pound stone that had been sealed with a type of concrete deal while these guards were sleeping without waking them up, took the body of Jesus, oh, by the way, unwrapped the linens around him first, so took his naked body, left the linens there, slipped away without the guards ever noticing. I mean, it's, just, it's preposterous to believe that that's the case. And then that they would go and hundreds of other people would go and, and proclaim at the risk of their life and of their families' lives that they saw what they saw. I mean, it, it's just absolutely... And so, again, I, it, some of you, I maybe I don't even need to convince you, but I needed to convince myself. And I, as I reflected on these things, it was like I believed for the first time again this... It was no longer a matter of faith for me. It's once again, I mean, the last couple of weeks just become a matter of fact. It's like, oh my God, you're, I, like, you, it's changed my prayer life. You know, I mean, you ever like just wonder, like, is God really listening? Is God really there? You know, can I really believe what the scriptures tell me? Yes, 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 yes. And the evidence is in the resurrection. The scriptures pointed to it for hundreds and hundreds of years and it happened. Holy cow. The way that changes the way that you interact with God and you live out your faith is, is quite big. Christ is alive and this matters a whole lot and we're going to read more about why in verses 12 through 14 and 17 through 20. Paul writes, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Ouch. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's good for nothing. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, apparently there are some people in Corinth who don't fully uh, understand the resurrection, and Paul uh, really wants to help them understand it, right? Yeah, they don't believe it or they don't understand it. And, and uh, so Paul's wanting to set them straight. He says, if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And here's what he's talking about. All right, um, for hundreds of years before Christ was alive, Hundreds of years before Christ was born, maybe even thousands, it was Jewish belief, and still is to this day, that at the end of time, there would be a bodily resurrection. This is a uniquely uh, Judeo-Christian concept. That at the end of time, when all this is over, and for us when Christ returns, right, that there will be a bodily resurrection of all people, all the faithful dead, and that there will be a new creation. Right? And so it's not that um, the Jews before Jesus, again, they believed this, and they thought there was a resting place, and they still, that there's this place, Sheol, Hades, all right? Well, we might call hell today, but it wasn't, I mean, even good people went there. That was the resting place, the spiritual place, where we're separated from the body until that final day. 
where our physical bodies are resurrected. I mean, think about this. Like, what does actually, our graves, like Jesus, will be empty. Isn't that an interesting thought? The grave that you're put in will be empty the day of the resurrection. That's the kind of bodily resurrection we're talking about. This is so important, actually, to the Christian faith that it's one of the 12 major points in the Apostles' Creed, right after the forgiveness of sins. Bodily resurrection. Not just, li- they, not just life after death. It's life after life after death. Right? And so a quick side note on this. The reason theologically this is so important, it's not just splitting hairs. What it means is that, is that God truly, genuinely, deeply cares about creation. That creation is, is undeniably, inherently good. And the way that we live our lives here on earth the way that we enjoy creation, the way that we take care of it, as well as our bodies, it matters. God cares about that too. All right, so that was, that was just a side note. The main point here, though, is that when Jesus appeared to his disciples three days after being crucified, he didn't appear in spirit. He appeared in flesh and blood. This is like Jesus, flesh and blood standing. And you can read these accounts in the scriptures where the disciples say, he says, look, touch me. Stick your hand in my wounds. Look, and he literally says, I'm, I'm, I have bones, I have flesh. And he sits and he eats with them. It couldn't be more clear. He's flesh and blood. And why that was so important was because his resurrection was different than anyone who'd ever, that even Jesus had ever raised back from the dead. Because all of those people, even, that Jesus raised from the dead, they were going to die again, not Jesus. He was in a transformed state. He was in a glorified state. And the disciples knew when they saw this that he was the first of many. To them, this was the beginning of the end, right? Because they were Jewish. They knew this theology of the bodily resurrection. They see the first man ever to be resurrected in the body, and they say, oh my gosh, it's coming to an end. The end is near. And that's why it changed the way that they lived. Because to them, the end times were imminent. They were right here. What's happened to Jesus is also going to happen to us. What we believe for hundreds of years, this is proof that is true. And having witnessed this, not only were they able to see the end, they had hope, they had confidence, they had certainty that the end would come to fruition. They live differently because of it. Now, in our church today, I think we tend to think of the resurrection as a past event um, rather than a future reality. And it doesn't have the power in our lives that it did in, in the disciples' lives, in the early Christians' lives. And so think with me for a second. How, how often do you reflect on the resurrection? I mean, how much, how much power has the resurrection really given to your life in deep reflection? If, if you're like me, you probably reflect a lot more on the cross than you do the resurrection. It's not a criticism. It's just um, I, I do the same thing. We, we, in our culture, for whatever reason, we, reflect, we spend a lot of time thinking about the cross. You know, the cross is the most perfect display of God's love for us. Why, I mean, that's, it's a really good thing to spend our time thinking about. The cross um, is, where, is why our sins are forgiven, right? The cross is um, often how I kind of like submit myself to obedience through Christ's example of obedience, right? The cross is really important. Don't get me wrong. I never want to, like, discount the importance of the cross. But to the early Christians, it wasn't the cross that drove their passion. It really, it really wasn't. 
in all my research, all my observation, all the books I read about this, whatever, the early Christians were fixated, not on the cross, but on the resurrection. That resurrection reality, the resurrected Jesus, absolutely transformed the way that they lived. And it can with us, too. Apart from the resurrection, Paul says, our faith is useless. My preaching, useless. He says, uh, basically, we just worship another dead guy, right? If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, he's, he's just another dead guy. Our sins have not been forgiven, apart from the resurrection. Right? The resurrection is actually evidence that the cross was effective, Apart from the resurrection, our hope is only in this life. And if that's the case, Paul admits, he says, if our hope is only in this life, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, he says, we are more to be pitied than anyone else on the face of the earth. And sometimes, I mean, I, I really identify with that idea. <laughs> like, if the resurrection isn't true, man, I, I am more to be pitied than anyone else on the face of the earth because the Christian life, the life of a disciple is hard. And there are times where you are in the dark night of the soul in that valley and if it weren't for the resurrection, if it weren't for the end result of my faith to keep me going, I honestly don't know how I would. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, Paul says, the first fruits of those who have died. And if we cling to this truth, it will change the way we live. We will experience salvation here today in a new way. I'm going to read our last bit of scripture. Listen, I tell you. <clears throat> listen, I tell you a mystery. Now, when Paul says mystery, he doesn't mean something we can't understand. Um, he means a mystery revealed through God to the church. Okay, so it was a mystery. No longer anymore is. We will not all sleep, which means we won't all die, but we will all be changed. You can hear there the imminence that Paul, that he, Paul actually thinks that people in his day they're not all going to die, that Christ will return. But it, well, obviously he, he was wrong. He didn't know that 2,000 years later we'd still be here. But we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Our bodies will take on immortality and glory. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I know personally how easy it is to think that you're fighting a battle that you can't win. I know personally how easy it is to be fall away from God even just for a short amount of time, to fall into temptation, to fall into despair, to question whether or not 
this is all worth it to question why am I even uh, bothering pursuing God? I know how easy these things are. I know how easy it is to question whether or not things in my life will ever change, whether things in the world will ever change. Guys, I know how easy this is. Just last night, I was talking to Kayla about um, my life and, and the despair that I've kind of felt recently, a sense of kind of hopelessness and, and what's the point. Um, and one of the hardest things about preaching is I have to proclaim what I'm not always feeling. It's what I know to be true, but I may not be feeling it in my heart. And so honestly, that's, that's where I was at last night and even this morning, but also one of the amazing things about preaching is that I have to proclaim what I know to be true, what I'm not feeling. There's power in proclaiming what we know to be true, even when we're not feeling it. And this is what I know to be true, that every battle fought for the sake of Christ is worth fighting. Here's what I know to be true, Everything you do for Christ is worth doing. Everything you pursue for the sake of Christ is worth pursuing. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And no matter how many battles it seems like you've lost, there is victory in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter how many times it feels like you've fallen into sin and temptation, fallen away from God. There is victory through Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's a word that I needed to hear this morning. This isn't a victory in the distant past. And it's not only a victory in the faraway future. It is a victory today, here, and now. And if you need the power of God in your life to continue, to keep going, to press through, you draw near to the throne of grace in the confidence of Christ and His victory, the war that He has won, and you declare it. You declare that victory. You say, yes, Jesus, you have won. That power, that spirit, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same spirit that lives in you and me. And you can claim it and you can name it and you can take it here this morning. One of the ways in which we can cling tightly to this truth is through the sacrament of Holy Communion. It's by dining with Christ and each other that we get a foretaste of the kingdom that is to come. It's where we proclaim that current and future victory in Christ. We proclaim that day that we believe will come where all of creation will be made new, where our bodies will be glorified, transformed in an instant into eternity, into immortality, and we'll, we will dine with one another and with Christ at the heavenly banquet, celebrating this victory forever. I mean, what a, oh, what an image. What a future. This is where we proclaim that. So on the last night of Jesus' life, he sat at the table with his disciples. And he lifted up the, the bread at the table. 
He gave thanks and he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. After the dinner, he lifted up the cup. He said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink, all of you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we do this in remembrance of Jesus, not just of what he did, but of what he promised. The future that we know to be true. And every time we gather to do this, we proclaim the Lord's death and his resurrection until he returns. So Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on these gifts of bread and juice. Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ, that we might be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. Transform us. Give us your power. Give us your presence, God. Resurrect us today in the most like literal or figurative way that you can come up with. I, just, just give us new life, God. We need it. I confess my own spirit of just despair recently to you. I give that to you and I stand here, I join you and join others to proclaim the victory that is ours in Christ. Thank you, God, for this incredible gift. Amen.